My name is Brian Hayes. I am the program chair for the Chicago chapter, and I would like to welcome you to today's event. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker, and I think uh, very timely in light of the, uh, the, the brief program you saw earlier, as we'll be talking about uh, Beyond Green and greening the government. Just to give you some sense of perspective, uh, the GSA is responsible for 10,000 facilities and 350 million square feet. So I think that uh, anything that they, they are talking about, certainly we should be paying attention. Just a quick reminder, uh, at your tables you'll see yellow sheets, I think they're yellow. Evaluation forms, we encourage you to fill those. Did I, I lost my sound? Am I back? Okay. Uh, we encourage you to fill those out. We do rely on those for, uh, for uh, establishing future programs. So I'd like to introduce uh, Kevin Kampshire. Kevin is the Director of Research and Expert Services for the General Services Administration. Um, he has created the uh, Workplace 2020 program, a new process emphasizing organizational performance before design, uh, focusing on relationships among the physical environment, individual and group behavior, and organizational performance. As Deputy Assistant Commissioner for GSA's Office of Business Performance, he played an integral role in recent efforts to establish solid empirical performance measures and link them directly to the budget. He was responsible for performance measurement, for best practices, and benchmarking. And over the past 30 years, Mr. Kampshire has served in a variety of GSA regional and headquarters positions. Uh, he was a leader in efforts to replace and modernize GSA's obsolete and difficult-to-maintain computer information systems. And he was also the project manager for the Ronald Reagan Federal Building and Trade Center, now the second-largest office building in the United States. Uh, Mr. Kampshire is a graduate of Yale University and has lectured at Harvard, MIT, Johns Hopkins, Stanford, and Georgia Institute of Technology, and frequently presents for various industry groups such as Cornet Global and BOMA. He is the research chair for the Advanced Building Systems Integration Consortium at Carnegie Mellon University and the industry partner chair for the Center for the Built Environment at the University of California at Berkeley. A profile of his work appeared in IS Magazine in April of 2003, and he is the IIDA Star Award recipient for 2004. So we're delighted to have Kevin. I think this will be a very interesting topic, and I will turn it over. Thank you. Um, this act is uh, very interesting because it had very strange bedfellows as co-sponsors. Uh, in the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, for example, you had co-sponsors of Barbara Boxer and, uh, and Senator Inhofe, who couldn't be more diametrically opposed on most other issues. But this is an issue of energy conservation, global warming, climate change, and sustainability, which has uh, sparked interest and support on both sides of the congressional aisle and throughout the world. In a recent Cornet survey of uh, all the different areas that Cornet is in, we find that in every place the respondents to the corporate real estate executives like yourselves are saying that sustainability and energy conservation are not just hot topics now but for the foreseeable future and becoming more and more important to the corporations they work for. So what I wanted to do today is talk a little bit about what we're doing in the General Services Administration, the federal government as a whole, and I'm going to throw in a few things from the Energy Independence and Security Act, which I don't have a good acronym for, uh, because they will affect uh, your lives. One of the things, for example, that happens in that act is that within uh, the next decade, the incandescent light bulb as we know it today will no longer be available in this country that'll be replaced by things that are more important to, I mean, more effective for us to use, more energy effective, more cost effective. There's going to be a large program run by the Department of Energy on high-performing green buildings uh, in the commercial sector. The Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Energy together will be working on greening the school systems of this country. And Many of the reasons that people are doing this, now we'll see if I can make, okay, are here. Buildings constitute 40% of the annual U.S. energy usage and nearly 80% of the electrical consumption. That's more than the transportation sector alone. 
We contribute through our buildings 30% of the carbon dioxide that goes in the air and 40% of the ozone depletion and contribute from our buildings 35% of the municipal solid waste, not even counting the waste in construction. 25% of the water use in this country goes into and usually out of buildings in a much lesser quality than it comes in. 30% of the buildings that we've measured have poor indoor air quality by any standards, and most people spend about 90% of their time indoors in one way or another. All right, here we go. So there's other models. I uh, recently came back from a, a delightful vacation in Italy and have to include some of those vacation slides on the presentation here to get full use of that camera I bought just for the trip. Um, but yes, open air living. Uh, we, we decided in the 70s that we were going to uh, close up our buildings and seal them to make them more energy efficient. And what did we create when we did that? Sealed buildings that then produced this wonderful new syndrome called sick building syndrome that had not existed before we decided that we were going to seal the buildings up. There are different uh, ideas about how you get around. If you look around in most cities who have taken the sort of the, if you will, the, the, the carbon blueprint of their cities, you find that cities, because of their good infrastructure, their transportation and so on, actually contribute much less to global warming than the suburbs and the sprawl. Um, and there are different modes of density. So Florence, anyway. A nice place to have a different mode of density, too. So why, I mean, one of the nice things about working for the General Services Administration is our mission. I mean, it, we provide superior workplaces for the federal worker at best value for the American tax, taxpayer. And the important part of that equation for me and for most of us who work there is the best value equation because we are explicitly encouraged to look at the long-term value. It's as difficult for us to balance capital cost versus operating cost versus disposal cost as it is for anyone else here because we account for things in the same way. But it is this whole idea of being able to create value by everything that we do. Um, the benefits of green buildings, and you are seeing them more as, as companies, especially encouraged by the uh, European Union, are going to triple bottom line reporting, but there are environmental benefits, economic benefits, and equity benefits. We just completed a study of 16 of the uh, lead rated buildings or the uh, sustainable buildings that we built even before we started using the lead measurement system in 2001. Um, and we find that, that compared to their portfolio overall, they are producing a, a more healthy interior for people to work in with greater tenant satisfaction, lower energy costs, and a higher uh, than average in our portfolio return on investment. We measure, measure the, the funds from operations and the annual FO, uh, return on investment for all of our buildings every year, and we have certain goals set up for those just as a real estate investment trust would do. A key point about the, the whole, uh, how you get there from here is integrated design. And I'm not going to read the entire slide to you, but the, the point about the integrated design here is entirely that the, um, the planning of an integrated sustainable building must begin at the very beginning. You must bring everybody to the table at the same time. Uh, the idea that we can subdivide our industry, which is fragmented enough anyway, and still produce great buildings at the end of the thing is just crazy. Everybody needs to come in the table. It's not just the architects at the beginning working with the client. The entire team needs to be there. And of course, we find that the, the greatest success is when the building operator is in the, and the tenant, and the designers, and the engineers are all working together from the very beginning of the project. Makes for a very, very different outcome. We haven't done it in GSA yet, but I like a concept that I heard that had been tried in New York where the design team's fee was held in reserve, one-third of it was held in reserve to see whether the performance of the building was up to the design, and the fee was only paid after the third year of operation. So I'm thinking this is a good way to, to, to think about it in the future. 
There is a problem with that, though, just to let you know that I'm not you know, entirely a Scrooge in this. There's a problem. The fees aren't big enough. I mean, how many of you here in this room in the design profession can afford to have a third of your fee sitting out there on the table for three years? So the fee had to be higher for something like that. But the performance of the building, it, I think, uh, benefits greatly from that. There's also some contractual possibilities about you know, retaining ownership for a longer period of time and investment ownership, but um, somehow this, this integrated design process has got to be a part of it, and frankly, it is the people who are commissioning the work that really need to enforce this, and it's a lot easier to do when you're the General Services Administration, you might think, but it's, it's the owners and the developers who really need to embrace this and understand its value, and it makes a huge long-term uh, benefit in the end. Um, we have found, again, in the study of, of, of buildings uh, that we've done and that we've read that in sustainably designed buildings, recruitment is easier, job retention is up, and the flip side of that is, is reduced costs. All of these go to the bottom line of the tenants of the building uh, in place. Another example here, and this is actually just by coincidence that the um, picture here, I believe, is uh, in Chicago. No question about that. Um, the living roof. I mean, a lot of the things I'm going to give examples of are a little bit in the way of debunking, because just, just earlier this week, one of my colleagues in General Services Administration said green roofs should be abolished because they leak, when, in fact, what green roofs do is they preserve the membrane underneath so that they last longer. Every flat roof is going to leak eventually. That's just a fact of life. But we found that it's actually the green roof preserves the material underneath, and you get about 30% more time life out of the membrane underneath a green roof than in a regular one. And yes, green roofs have been around long enough so that they can be measured in that way. Um, and of course, in this city in particular, um, the, uh, the, the green roof is a big deal. We have just recently built in um, the, uh, in, in just north of Washington, the largest green roof on the East Coast, several acres in size, and it, and it, it covers a, a third, uh, two-thirds of the entire building. Um, Brian already introduced this, so I'm going to uh, flip over that here a little bit. 1.1 million people work in our buildings. Um, that's what we care about. I mentioned one of the, the most recent laws, but it's, I think you can see by glancing through here, sustainable design, energy conservation has been around uh, in GSA for some time. Uh, we currently operate our inventory at about 12% below uh, private sector comparables uh, for energy conservation. Between 1985 and 2005, we reduced our portfolio energy consumption by 30% from uh, the baseline year. At the same time, if you imagine uh, during that year, we went from a density of maybe one personal computer for every 10 people to something like 1.2 PCs for every one person. So um, the most, and the, and the most, most recent one has, uh, has uh, the, the law has also adopted the 2030 challenge that was put out there for, first by the architect Ed Mazaria and recently adopted by the American Institute for Architects. Um, and it starts out by saying that buildings that we should design right now, that according to the law right now, should be 55% uh, more energy efficient, consume less fossil fuel um, generated energy than, than the private sector comparables. And there's a big database that actually includes government, uh, private, uh, nonprofit, as well as uh, all sectors of the buildings that the Department of Energy maintains. And 55% is achievable with today's technology pretty well, but in 2030 the goal is 100%, and 100% is really hard to fiddle around. That means no fossil fuel energy in the building whatsoever, none. So we've got a ways to go in just in terms of what uh, should be done uh, in our industry. There are other drivers for sustainable design. We talked a little bit earlier about the environment. Um, energy efficiency, uh, we've talked about the cost of energy is going up. I don't think anybody is going to guess exactly how fast, but we know what the direction is going to be. Um, 
recycling, reuse of environmentally sound project, all make good business sense. Um, I was on a panel a couple of weeks ago, and the Midwest uh, head of the Heinz Development Corporation said that they, when, whenever they plan to take over a building from another owner or another operator, they assume that they can cut 15% out of the energy cost of that building just by improving the existing practices and spending not one penny of capital. If you go around and you start looking at what is going on in the buildings today, there is opportunity to be more sustainable, more energy efficient, and save money uh, at, at staggering amounts, we are finding. Better performing assets, greater value in the long run. And we talked about the uh, amount of time people spend inside, and I mentioned these kind of strange bedfellows that we're seeing in the, um, here we go. Oh, it's you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> any rate, um, and, and different places. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about it. Um, any of those of you familiar with uh, LEED system, these are the areas that uh, we look at in, in the area of sustainability, and we'll talk about those in a series of buildings. Within GSA, um, we use the LEED set. There's a, people talk about LEED standards. Um, LEED is a system of measurement, it's a system of assessment, but it's not a system of standards. We have building standards, Every other, other people have building standards. LEED's a measurement system. It suggests maybe a path to go, but it doesn't tell you how to do it. And it sets certain kinds of standards, like being better than ASHRAE by a certain amount. In the new law, uh, GSA is required to be 30% better than the, that is to say, to consume less energy than the ASHRAE 90.1 standard would have us do. Um, another huge change in the law that's coming up uh, in 2010, GSA will lease from the private sector only buildings that have received an Energy Star rating beginning in 2010. Big change. We've got till 2010 to communicate it. This is communication opportunity for me. So those of you who are in the, the leasing business, um, it's something coming down the pike uh, here in the near future. This is a uh, just sort of a really quick picture of the different kinds of lead buildings that we've gotten in, in our inventory. We have 24 that are lead rated right now. We have over 80 that are in the rating process um, and what we're finding, and as you can see in the, the, the middle column of the chart, is that the buildings that we lease, um, we're having actually, uh, we're, we're getting them rated faster. Part of that is because the government does take a little bit longer to build buildings than the private sector, mostly because of the long delay between design and delivery caused by the congressional appropriations process. Um, but I was uh, heartened to see that in the magazine of the Urban Land Institute, the developer, um, I think Crescent Properties, but don't quote me on that, of the Potomac Yards buildings was advertising, took out a full-page ad to say that they had leased to the GSA for the Environmental Protection Agency two buildings, achieved a gold lead rating, and brought it in at under uh, comparable prices for the area. So the, probably the biggest concern that most people have if they're not familiar with building green or building in a sustainable way is the extra cost and what we're finding is that the familiarity of people, the uh, creativity of design and the availability of materials has changed in a dramatic way over the last decade and prices have gone down. We now see a premium for construction, and I'm getting ahead of, there's a slide on this later, but right now we're seeing that the premium, if there is one that we can measure, is less than estimating inaccuracy. And in fact, there was a recent study done that showed that the premium for a lead silver building was less than 1% of the cost, and I defy any of you to even measure the cost of a building to within 1%, much less get the estimating accuracy down there. So, I'm going to go through a few of these uh, uh, slides here, uh, visible, just to show you some buildings and what, what can be accomplished here pretty quickly. Um, and what I would also say is we, what we've done with each of these slides is try to pick out some salient features just to give you an idea of the many different ways that you can um, go about 
and the many different areas within the building industry that, that are affected by the idea of sustainability. This little green facts up in the upper right-hand corner tells you where we particularly did well in the score. I'm not going to certainly go through theirs, but maintain, maintenance of, uh, of, of the site itself. We are definitely trying across the country to get back to the kind of native lands, uh, landscaping that is appropriate for the area. And we get some pushback. In the Oklahoma Federal uh, Building, we used native grasses, and some of the community said it looks like a field of weeds. And uh, I guess that was a comment on Oklahoma more than a comment on the design, but we didn't say that in our official response. Um, but... Uh, but, uh, but it, it requires some education, and I think one of the great things about this garden is the educational component that is in, included in it, because people don't understand that the grasses and so on that were, you know, were there in the prairie can be preserved in some cases from extinction and at the same time not consume the same level of water that a non-native species would do. Um, we do not, but I think it will become more of an issue as we go forward and as more people try and get their carbon footprint. Um, uh, we don't measure in a really uh, diligent way the a cost that goes into importing things uh, from long distances in, into the building. But you know, if you start looking at just what you can do in terms of local materials, um, you sometimes find very surprisingly uh, that you're not only able to drive some prices out of there, but you get some ideas in the whole design process as well. Um, so this is the um, another building where we used water um, from flushing toilets with rainwater, capturing it on the roof, and then recycling it back into the building. We have a, a great building in uh, New Orleans that we're fixing up because of the post-Katrina fix-up that we discovered uh, they had, um, when, they, when they built the building in the 1840s, they had put two very large cisterns on the interior of the building, captured all the rainwater from the top and used the cisterns to, um, uh, to provide water for the horses because that's how everybody got around, and so that was there. So we're trying to reuse the cisterns and use it for flushing water in there because everything still works. And we just found it because that's where the water went in its natural way. They were all closed up, and we just discovered these things underneath as well. Um, this is a EPA regional headquarters in um, Kansas City, and you can see the features there, a huge amount of attention to bringing uh, the green inside. So not only do you have sort of this idea of natural light coming from inside the building as well as outside the building, but also using the plants to cleanse the air on, on the interior of the building, another gold-rated building there. Um, Lakewood, Colorado, uh, Department of Transportation here. Um, again, mentioned the and, and you see it's not, you know, there's no grass out here, but also you're beginning to see, and you'll see in a lot of these, construction waste diverted from the landfills. And, you know, I usually get asked, you know, all right, how do you do that? You've got to get the construction contractor to really plan the work. I, I, I remember my brother and sister were building in a house, and I went, I walked, went up there on one of the many site visits to um, look at it, and it had been raining. And the contractor had thrown out um, pieces of plywood for the construction crew to walk on over the mud. Um, there was probably about uh, five or six hundred dollars worth of plywood being wasted on the ground. That seems like nothing, but what you've got to do is get sort of the mentality of everybody in there saying, you know, how can we not waste in that kind of fashion throughout? We've had some projects where we have. Uh, uh, saved 90, over 90 percent of the construction waste in the in the building there. Um, and again, here uh, in Salt Lake City, we've got energy energy performance uh, less, uh, 47 percent less than ASHRAE standards. And then using a combination of light shelves and uh, interior windows and so on, getting light into the interior of the building uh, in, a, in a really substantial way. Um, lighting is, of course, accounting for 
lighting and plug load accounts for over 30% of building energy use. And um, light today, electric light in buildings uh, in the United States today, there's over 400 times as much as there was a century ago. And our eyes did not get 400 times worse over the course of a century. Um, but what happened was, in, in, a, in, an, in the typical way, we invented this great new product called the fluorescent tube and said, well, if a little bit of light is a good thing, a whole lot must be an even better thing. And so now we've got 400 times as much electric light in buildings, and we need to really be rethinking whether we should. Most of the lighting standards in buildings today were created before the invention of the laptop and the personal computer, which, by the way, produced their own light. And the, and, and the biggest cause of eye strain isn't not enough light, but it's the contrast between surfaces, too much light and too little light there. So if you can get a more better, a better ambient savings, uh, better ambient light conditions, you have lowered eye strain and, in fact, um, higher, higher productivity in there. Um, reuse of existing buildings, um, I would say this might not be everybody's idea of great architecture, but um, it's there. We reused it, um, and it, a historic building, I suppose in this case old, more than historic. So, uh, and here in, uh, in Lincoln, uh, Nebraska, Again, water waste reduction, and 100% of the energy is supplied by uh, green, green power uh, from relatively local sources, mostly wind, some, uh, some solar on the site as well. Um, here at, uh, in, in Omaha, 100% rainwater harvesting and a, a Green Guard certification, no off-gassing. Um, and energy performance uh, over the baseline by 66%, and again, pushing forward there. These are the uh, Potomac Yards uh, gold certified buildings that I mentioned earlier uh, in Arlington, Virginia. And again, um, green power purchasing as well there. Um, so in um, another view of the same building and views from 90% of the offices, uh, was actually one of the client's requirements that, uh, that, that we should preserve views and have natural light throughout the buildings there. Um, and again, here, historic building, reuse of the place here in the Metzabam uh, courthouse. Uh, we created an annex there, reused the shell, um, reduced the water and, and energy uh, consumption within the building, and, uh, and preserved you know, which is a, a really beautiful asset for the city. Uh, as well, and here's a couple of interior views of that building. Um, we don't really build courthouses like that before. That is a courtroom there. There are some federal judges who would like us to build courtrooms like that still, and I would like to remind all of you that they're pointed out for light. But the, the, the Metzenbaum courthouse used a model, uh, this is Italy again, that... Uh, <laughs> Brunelleschi used before of that interior courtyard bringing the light into the inside and in nice weather getting it out and around. And we, you know, people think, oh yeah, operable windows, that's a great thing, but not in Chicago. It's too cold in the winter and it's too hot in the summer. And you're right, but there's still five or six months of the year when it's really beautiful here and in most of the United States. And so, and I, I have a long-running battle with the building manager of our own building because the, the, our, our building was built in 1918 and the windows were meant to be operable. In fact, it was built without air conditioning. There are transoms, it's a double-loaded corridor and all these other things. So many of us who like to be able to open the windows, um, open them, the building manager, of course, becomes outraged. We don't really have central air conditioning in the building to speak of. They're all window units to, in this lovely old building. And I keep pointing out that in the, in the offices that people can control the temperature by opening and closing the windows. He doesn't get complaints. And people are actually 
a lot smarter than most building managers give them credit for. If it's raining outside, they really do close the windows all on their own. They don't need a system to tell them to do it. So this is uh, the Morse uh, Courthouse uh, in uh, Eugene, Oregon by uh, uh, Morphosis. Again, uh, gold-rated uh, building, 30% lower energy usage, 90% uh, of the construction waste diverted from the landfills and the water reduction. Again, waterless urinals. I had an interesting conversation. I was talking about waterless urinals to the, the uh, congressperson who chairs the committee that controls the authorizations for GSA and she said Congresswoman Norton that she'd never seen a waterless urinal before and um, certainly hadn't planned to use one but it's uh, it's again a lot of myths about waterless urinals many building managers will tell you they're higher maintenance it's different maintenance all the studies that have been done that compare regular urinals with flush valves and so on the maintenance of the flush valves over the life of the urinal is more costly than the maintenance of the seals. But you got to tell the cleaning crew not to dump stuff in there because that kind of ruins the crew. So it is a partly an educational process and no, they don't smell if they're properly maintained. And we found that out because one of our engineers uh, actually experienced one firsthand and I was standing in an adjacent location, let's say, and <laughs> And uh, he, we were talking about it because uh, this was up at Carnegie Mellon, and he said that he'd never seen one before. And I couldn't believe it because he was in the act of using one at the very moment that he had never seen one. And so, at any rate, you may not, you may not notice uh, what, what you haven't uh, chosen to notice here anyway. Um, Thermal ice storage system used in this one in Woodlawn, Maryland. Uh, it's it's a uh, interesting concept. Um, you know, you capture the water, you use thermal ice, and they use it for cooling. It we'll see how well it's working there. Some of these things work really well. Some don't. Um, here again, another example of um, went too fast there. Of, again, in Woodlawn, using recycled materials within there and views of the outside uh, of the building. That's where your Social Security checks come from, by the way. So you do want those people being uh, accurate in what they're doing because they're managing the money as well. Um, here we go. Um, the, uh, in Youngstown, Ohio, views of the outdoors again, materials locally manufactured um, and, and used there. Uh, one of the earliest buildings in our inventory. Um, and here we go. This is uh, kind of interesting because what is interesting about this slide is what you don't see. This is the border station or the land port of entry in, in, in Sweetgrass, Coots. And um, what you don't see is the one on the other side of the border. This is actually the first time that the U.S. and Canada said we don't really need to build two buildings. We'll just build one building and share it. Um, very interesting kind of negotiations had to go on there because there's a different philosophy on the border uh, on the north and the south. Our border patrol people wear guns. Theirs don't. Uh, our border patrol people like to cut down the trees so they have a clear line of sight. Theirs don't. And so there was a lot. There's not very many trees here anyway, so that was an easier discussion. But So a lot of diplomacy, but one whole building didn't get built at all. And, the, and, and, and if, if there's any one single thing about sustainability that I think it's overlooked and is perhaps the most important thing not to overlook is that it's the thing that you don't do that may be the most sustainable. It's the building that you don't build. It is the, you know, the extra space that isn't constructed and the cost is entirely avoided because you've actually done the job up front to figuring out what you need first. Um, this is an existing building here um, in Kentucky, um, or Tennessee, I'm sorry, Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, where in, in the course of a renovation, uh, we not only reduce 50% of the water use, but reduce the energy consumption in the building compared to its prior operation by over 60%. Uh, 
Some of that was through, uh, that's 60%, only 15% was through the mechanical systems innovations and, and really getting the mechanical system to work. The other 45% uh, of the energy use reduction was through a whole series of uh, efforts working with the tenants of the building to change the way the building was used. A lot of it was lighting occupancy sensors, all the usual kind of things, but also talking to the tenants about, you know, do you really want to be running 24-hour operations? And they looked at se several of the operations and said, well, the only reason we run this operation 24-7 is because of the server. So, you know, consolidate the servers, very small server room for the whole building. There's a multi-tenant building. And they agreed security things all worked out and so on. And so a lot of these rooms and parts of the buildings that were running 24-7 are now running on a normal schedule. Huge savings to the tenant, huge savings to the government, huge savings to the taxpayer as well, and better operations for them. In uh, Denver, here, Byron Rogers uh, Courthouse, again, uh, part renovation, part new building. Um, completely powered by wind, uh, which we buy by contract. It's not on site there. We actually have the first uh, federal building that was completely powered by wind was in Binghamton, New York, where the power is actually delivered directly to the building. And what we did by that demand was we, uh, we basically um, created the opportunity for the adjacent town of Fenner to create a wind farm, which is providing local employment there, which didn't exist uh, in, that, in that part of upstate New York before as well. Statue of Liberty, by the way, is completely powered by wind, purchased by GSA. Um, here we go. And again, um, Arise Courthouse, um, also in Denver, one of our earlier buildings, uh, partially underfloor air, partially not. Turns out that the partially not parts don't work as well as the partially are underfloor air. Um, and it, it, if you think about it, too, I mean, we put underfloor air in all the courtrooms, and one of the unintended byproducts is that the judges are particularly happy because the mechanical noise has been so reduced that they can hear better in the courtroom, so the acoustics are, are better off. And, of course, courtrooms are double-height floors anyway, so you can really take advantage of the stratification that underfloor air systems uh, give you. Uh, and so there we go. Um, I'm going to skip over that one as well. This is the, uh, the non-picture of the what is usually called in GSA as the brown roof at the uh, Satellite Operations Center. But you can see the roof is this entire area here. Um, the huge economic driver for the green roof there was that had we not done the green roof, we would have had to install a new stormwater runoff sewer um, and the local county was so cooperative that they said and by the way here's where it has to go and it would have been 14 miles long and undergone uh, under three major roads uh, so so this this is coupled with stormwater runoff and we have a pond uh, that picks it up from the entire site this is on a campus setting there and we actually managed to uh, completely avoid the need for that. In the new law, GSA, well, actually, the entire federal government is required in any development to return the site to its pre-development hydrology, which means that we have to manage the water on that site so that it's accommodated exactly as if there had been no development there at all. This includes major repairs and renovations. So there's going to be some very interesting um, thought processes going into this in the near future, I think. And I think the last building in here is the new San Francisco Federal Building. Um, the tower here is designed, A, to be narrow so that uh, people get views throughout it. The windows are both operable by the building and operable by the tenants. The row of buildings that is near the slab or the row of windows that's near the slab is operated by the building. We do uh, evening slab cooling. The entire tower has no air conditioning whatsoever. It is only cooled by the prevailing breezes. We made use of the local codes to site the building in a, in a place where to the, um, to the side that you're looking at, uh, no tall buildings can be built, so we're going to get the breezes basically forever there. 
as well. And um, and it's uh, actually I was just there on on Tuesday. It's really quite a cool place. But one of the things we didn't quite figure out is that it's the modern world. There's no wireless access in that building. And that was a real frustrating thing for me, I have to tell you. <laughs> so this is a little schematic here of how the uh, air goes through the building, how it's cooled, and how the natural light uh, bounces off. All of the, um, you can see it as sort of in the top one where it says line of sight. All of the offices and conference rooms are in these little cabins in the middle. The cabins don't go all the way up to the ceiling, and the, they're sort of balanced on a uh, uh, underfloor air that's just in the center of the building so that in, the, in a closed room you get uh, ventilation in there. It's mostly for ventilation at that stage. Again, it's not, it's um, using the natural uh, weather in San Francisco to, uh, to cool the building. Um, so how much does it cost? This is based on a series of studies GSA's done over the years uh, with a couple of different firms, both um, uh, here he was one of them, and I can't remember the other. Uh, Jacobs Engineering uh, both worked with us on, on these sort of cost comparisons. Two and a half percent um, for somewhere between silver and gold, uh, a, a premium. Um, again, way below estimating accuracy, especially in this day and age um, there. And the costs are coming down. There, the, the study that uh, was commissioned by the U.S. Green Building Council uh, just recently basically showed that um, the green buildings, it was a comparison of, I think, about 400 green buildings. Those of you who here in Chicago attended Green Build this year saw that. They just published it there. And what it basically showed was you can have an expensive green building and you can have an inexpensive green building just like a regular building in that way. And the, the unsurprising thing was it's the factors other than the greenness of the building that really determine the expense of the building overall. So, I mean, are there, are green buildings better? I mean, our recent study by Pacific Northwest National Laboratory show that in our inventory, they are better from the tenant's standpoint, and they are better from our overall ROI point standpoint. Do the rating systems and metrics help make better buildings? We think so. We think so for two reasons. First of all, and there's the old adage, you get what you measure. We use LEED for a measuring stick. And it does impel people to do things other than uh, uh, sort of point, you know, searching for the points. You don't, the measuring system is sufficiently sophisticated that if all you're going to do is try and achieve the rating by looking for the points and, and, and that silly example everybody gets, you get a point for a bicycle rack. Well, it's actually not true. You don't. But besides that, you have to do a whole lot of other things to get that bicycle rack point. You could get it probably here, but you would have to have a program that was working with the tenants and the other people. You would have to have showers in the building. You'd have to have a whole lot of things you'd done with the community to encourage the the, the real goal, which isn't the bicycle rack, but it's the reduction of the transportation load on the local area. Um, we also firmly believe that third-party rating systems are desirable. Um, we don't consider any rating system that's either self-generated, um, having a debate with some people, well, we, you know, we're sustainable, we just don't want to you know, spend the money on measurement. Well, I would argue that you might think you're sustainable, but you don't know. And so um, I think rating systems and metrics do uh, get people thinking about it, but it's actually the design team's integrated design that actually makes um, that. What does it take to sustain the performance of a green building over time? Um, knowledge, for one thing, uh, and also the design community has figured it out. I think a lot of the construction community has figured it out. You behave differently, you start thinking differently, and opportunities arise. When we get to the operations and maintenance community, I think we are not as far along in that regard. And what it will take to sustain the performance of green building over time is sort of revisiting what's going on in the building. The new act requires us to do what we probably should have been doing all along, which is recommission, retro commission every building in our inventory once every four years. Um, today, 
a retro commissioning effort can be expected to pay back its cost uh, within a year to a year and a half, typically. It's just good business practice to do that. Can buildings be symbiotic with natural systems? I think in some cases, yes, we're beginning to see that, but we certainly haven't figured it out, and I'm not advocating building sod houses for people to go to work in. But thinking about how that can incorporate, you know, in not just looking at individual buildings, but the buildings as they are situated in the community can create buildings that maybe move beyond sustainability to some kind of other regenerative relationship uh, with the land and really do talk about how buildings can get give back to the community as well as take from the community in natural resources. So maybe conventional practice, greening goals, slowing down the damage, and we look at, I went one too far, didn't I? So there we go. To sustainability targets, 100% less damage. It's a tough thing to think about things as doing less harm because what we really need to do, and I think is think about them in a different way, which is um, maybe this slide helps a lot, but just go beyond that to things that are actually restorative. Can we get, get, can we get buildings to be part of going back to uh, restoring the area to a better condition? And I think a lot of that has to do with the reduction. Can we get buildings to be such that the air is cleaner as a result of the buildings in the general area? And the green roof is an example of where that can certainly help. It can reduce the heat island effect in cities and so on. So um, some thoughts, you know, what is important, you know, the quality of life, the equity of people, health and community. I think, you know, talk about the, the little things that people can do that make large difference in people's lives. Um, light into the center of buildings, moving offices off the window walls, all of these kind of things that people are embracing have very large effects on the daily habits of people and it, it changes, and we're seeing these values being adopted by corporations, not just because they're uh, good economic sense, but also because corporations are, I think, recognizing that as we move forward in time, as the baby boomers retire in their weird kind of way, which they're doing reinventing retirement, um, that, that the war for talent really is going to be real, and, corporate, and people are going to want to work for corporations that embrace values that are also embraced um, uh, by the people who are working there as well. So getting the nuts and bolts right, hugely important. Um, you have to practice it. I mean, I can't tell you how much different it is talking about this within GSA today than it was in 2001. 2001, it was like, oh my God, everything was a major uh, project. We're going to do the Arage Courthouse. It's going to be the first one. We better get a high-performing team, and everything was special about it. Today, it's the way we do every project, and we are learning, I think, more and more that it just takes time to get from here to there, but having those stretch goals always in front of us. We're about to raise our goal from silver to gold, uh, for all of new construction. We've already raised the goal for leasing. We're expecting to see many of the things changing in, in what we're asking for from the private sector. And the fact that there's knowledge in the world uh, changes, changes matters uh, hugely as well. Um, so all buildings grow out of and reflect the unique character of their place, are an integral value-adding reciprocal member of the living system of which they are a part. If we can achieve that, I think we really will have achieved sustainability. I don't have a picture of that to show you because I don't think we've achieved it yet, but we might think about some of our legacy. These are the buildings we built in the 1900s, large building mass, relatively low energy costs. They were mostly built without air conditioning. They were quite livable at the time. People's lifestyles were a little bit different. They're not quite as connected then as we are now. Lots more paper. These are the buildings we built in the 1960s. I've said enough bad things about those already, I think. <laughs> and is this a model for the future? Maybe it is. Um, would you build a building exactly like this in Houston? No, because it's a different climate and a different space. But 
it does show that you can think about buildings in a different way and you can defy conventional wisdom sometimes and build something which is, at least to my mind, quite beautiful and certainly quite functional. Although I did, uh, my boss once uh, got in a little bit of trouble recently because he was sitting next to um, uh, Barbara Boxer, uh, Senator Boxer, who has an office in that building and uh, apparently doesn't like it very much. Um, a little bit too modern and not quite traditional enough. I think it's the concrete ceilings that undulate like this that are completely uh, un un untouched. They're actually quite beautiful, I think. But we'll see a year from now whether uh, how, how her office people like it and so on. It's available. But, you know, there's, a, there's an overall goal that we might think about. If we work together, now we're back in Italy again, <laughs> Can we avoid sinking this? You know, global warming is real, and the waters are rising, and we don't really have much time. It's time for all of us to get on board and embrace this in a very meaningful way. And I'm glad to see that this chapter already has. Thank you. Oh, yeah. It's the fun part. Yeah. Floor is also for questions. I'll start. Yeah. You run into conflicts with local code, local governments, in terms of trying to get some of these things done? Yes. Um, I'll pick on San Francisco because it's not Chicago. Um, in, in, or, or even in New York. Until, until Mayor Bloomberg really worked with it in New York if you wanted to uh, install a waterless urinal it was okay with the union uh, provided of course it was completely plumbed <laughs> so you had to pay for the plumbing as well as the non-use of the plumbing um, so yeah there are there are some uh, local code issues uh, the San Francisco federal building was a real uh, uh, challenge for us uh, partially because um, Although we thought we met the intent of the uh, local zoning codes by having very, you know, using the site in a creative and innovative way, uh, the city was a little bit more traditional and wanted a more dense use of the site, uh, but uh, didn't like that, you know, tall, narrow tower in there. So we do have um, those issues. Uh, I think that they're changing over, um, I've got a map and another. Uh, publication that we're just about to come out with in about a month or so on sustainability that shows all of the mayors of all of the cities that have embraced some kind of local green code. And it is changing very dramatically. Um, we are big advocates of using uh, national building codes and not having lots of local codes. Um, it's difficult. We have to work with every every jurisdiction that we're working uh, with around the country. Uh, but we're finding that they are changing and that, that um, the codes are more flexible, um, especially if the designers are creative and you know, sort of make sure that the dialogue starts with the local court enforcement officials um, early. I don't know. I've heard that Chicago is not the easiest town in the world in for, as far as uh, local codes go, but I don't have personal experience in that. I'm fortunate in that a lot of my personal experiences in Arlington County, Virginia, which was a very early adopter of, um, of green building practices. So again, as mayors and as cities take up, uh, take up the challenge, I think you find a more open-minded uh, open approach to that change. And obviously, the larger and more complex the city, the more difficult change is. Yeah, I will, uh, I will leave a, uh, a PDF version behind for you to put up on the chapter website. The, uh, it'll, it'll take me a little bit because all of those little, it, when you turn it into a PDF, all of those overlays, you know, obscure the pictures behind, so I have to do a little work for you on that. Yes. The, the, 
the question was, how do we make retro and recommissioning uh, really effective on an existing uh, portfolio? Um, one of the things that we're, well, two, two comments on that. Uh, first of all, we're just starting that program. We've done maybe, I would say, 30 or 40 or so retro commissioning projects within our inventory. And what you saw, one of them was the, one of the case studies I gave there, which is our first LEED EB-rated building, the Duncan Federal Building, where we achieved a 60% reduction in energy costs. So, um, but that was also uh, timed, so we did that whole retro commissioning process at the beginning of an RNA. A repair and alteration project, a major modernization. So we had money to do to invest in that as well, and you can get pretty dramatic results. Another technique we use to really, you know, build on the the retro commissioning is um, the use of energy savings performance contracts with some energy savings company or the local utility, where the financing is actually coming from the outside. And we have the ability, and I assume most of you do as well, to do 25-year uh, term contracts. So if you're the owner of the building, you can enter into that kind of contract. It does create a liability that runs with, with the property, but it's also a benefit because you're getting lower electric bills or lower utility bills in the very, very beginning of the process. Um, that allows you to act on, on that. What we're finding, though, in the ones that we've done is that, again, um, as the gentleman from Heinz mentioned, that, that what happens over time in buildings is through you know, incremental decisions, each one of which doesn't seem so great, buildings get very sub-optimized in their operations. Um, we do most of our work, or all of our work of building operations is outsourced. We find that some of our outsourced partners are uh, maybe not as diligent as they might be, um, we found when we installed advanced meters, we're systematically installing advanced metering in all of our buildings, so we get you know minute by minute review. So you can actually set up parameter, you can set up limits within there, so you can get an alert on every building if things seem odd. And we discovered one building operator who thought he'd fool us because it was too hard to keep track on a campus in St. Louis. Um, of about 10 buildings, and, and it was too hard to keep track of the coming and goings of the tenants and really operate the building uh, uh, control systems the way they were intended to be. So they ran all buildings 23 hours a day and thought that by shutting them down for an hour, we'd get fooled. And in fact, we were for a while um, until the advanced meters went in, and we said, oh, wait, but wait a minute, we can see this going minute by minute, and it's only shutting down for an hour, so they're not working there anymore. But um, it, it's going back in and making sure that the building operator is actually using the equipment in the way it was designed and then also discovering in a lot of cases that um, our buildings are the victim of overdesign, and maybe we can uh, use them you know, through some kind of very small uh, optimizer technology. I mean, an example, a building, a large building in, in Germantown, Maryland, two big chillers and they were designed, like most engineering, for the capacity to deliver on the extreme days. But the way they were being operated is both chillers operated all the time. And by putting an optimizer technology in between the two, we just run one chiller most of the time. And then the second one is back up. And then they switch back and forth so we can get optimal uh, performance out of that and not have both of them running all the time. And it, things like that come out of a good retro commissioning effort and sometimes you know a lot of times the the changes are relatively low cost and and of course if if the lighting retrofit hasn't been done in the last 10 years there's huge opportunity because um, and if you can combine it by replacing the ceiling which again it drives the cost up but you can really change the way that people use light in the building I mean that's 18 percent or so of the building load right there and again, it's working with the tenants, it's using occupancy sensors, it's uh, education programs. Every one of our building manager has an education program with the tenants. Now, we didn't have that five years ago. And again, it makes a difference. Yes, sir.
when it comes to innovative technology, what, uh, what has worked well, what hasn't worked well, and how have we dealt with things that haven't worked well in terms of that? Well, one of the, I'll start with underfloor air because there's a raging debate within GSA. Um, you'll probably figure out what side I'm on in no time. Um, but one of the thing, one of the huge problems we've had with underfloor air systems is uh, the construction of those systems not in accordance with the plans. Um, and the impact of that is significant leakage. And, you know, and we, in the Oklahoma City Federal Building, uh, the leakage through the wall to the exterior because the seal wasn't put in was rather dramatic and about 40% of the energy was really going to the outside. And if you went back in and looked at the plans, you see that they just, they didn't do things according to the plan. There were actual, there were, you know, barriers that weren't put in there. There's insulation that wasn't put in there. And then even when we got them to come back and do the stuff the way the plan was, then they went in and punched holes in it to run electric and other things like that because it's a non-thinking approach to new technology. Um, at the same time, the Morse Courthouse, the project manager knew about all of that, and the GSA project manager every single day was checking on the construction crews, and they, they talked about you know not repeating the mistakes of the past, and the leakage is well below what we specified in the in the contract. Um, you find I have a, a wonderful set of slides on one of the, the first underfloor air systems we did where we just had a, 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 a camera that took two pictures a day of the site. Um, uh, more, well, three pictures a day, morning, noon, and night, basically. And you can see uh, that the, the contractor laying the tiles down, and then a couple days later you can see all the tiles come back up. Something goes under the floor, the tiles go back down, then the tiles come back up again. Because, you know, it's like... Um, it's 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 using a new technology, but thinking you can stage the construction exactly the way you always staged the construction before. I mean, I tried to tell them it's the equivalent of asking the electricians to come in after you do your final coat of paint on the drywall. It just doesn't work that way. They don't like it, and you get a mess, and you have to paint all over again. Um, that that's certainly true. We've also found that in 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 especially last point on underfloor air that engineers have a tendency not to believe that it's going to be as effective as it is so sometimes the uh, the equipment is oversized and and most uh, organizations I know pretty well an engineer at Stantec who said that basically from the time that they started designing underfloor air systems to now they've actually uh, reduced their um, uh, capacity on the cooling equipment by 50% from what they thought was necessary originally. And, and they discovered this through a series of buildings where they had multiple uh, systems in the building and they just didn't use them. And I mean, it's nice that they're not using them, but it's, again, it's a capital expense that isn't there. Uh, waterless urinals, huge resistance on the part of just about everybody we touch. We have them in several buildings, the new Seattle, uh, the new Seattle Courthouse, yes, has waterless urinals. Um, they work. Um, there are there were problems originally with the seals, and there was one manufacturer, U.S. manufacturer, who uh, made seals that didn't work too well, and now they don't. Um, a lot of liability problems there. Um, a lot, and then, and I guess the last one is also an education one is, is uh, green roofs. We haven't actually had any problem with green roof leakage or installation or anything else. Uh, what we have is, again, a perception that it's a maintenance issue. You know, why, why are you putting that, all that water-consuming stuff again and, and people don't realize that what we're trying to do with the green roof is design it with plants that will grow in a... Uh, normal growing season there. And of course, we put over a million dollars worth of plants in that site in Suitland um, the uh, spring before the uh, record drought. Uh, so there might be a few plant replacements uh, going on there that won't, won't do much. Um, 
for it. Again, a lot uh, of the technology issues that we have experienced are, are, are mostly experienced at the handoffs from design to construction, from construction to operations. If you manage those handoffs well, then we find that the technology difficulties are, are a lot less. Uh, we don't find, for example, that building managers have much of a problem with underfloor air systems because they work reasonably well. They're relatively low maintenance, and, and the perception that you have to get underneath there and clean is just not true, and they're motivated not to do that anyway, so they're happy uh, when they discover they don't have to. So it's, it's a lot of education. And I would also say that we, as a rule, um, we don't buy the first model of anything. Um, somebody has to, uh, but as an organization, we're just a little bit more conservative than that, so we probably buy the second model or the third. Although we're probably going to put a fuel cell in a building, and it'll be like the second one in the federal inventory, but that we're going into it knowing that it's experimental technology with the Department of Energy, knowing that they'll you know, bail us out if it doesn't work really badly, really well. Yes, sir. General Services uh, comprehensively tracking employee productivity or any of the related indicators around office season? Uh, the, the short answer is no, because we don't, I mean, over that 1.1 million, there's too many union issues and too many different kinds of organizations to do really comprehensive look. What we are doing, though, is individual studies. Um, I, it's a whole other topic, but I would generally say that what we look at, rather than productivity, is organizational effectiveness. Um, individual productivity is becoming less and less important to organizations. It's team effectiveness and organizational effectiveness. And when you start talking about that, you don't have the big hurdle to deal with, but how do you measure knowledge, work, or productivity? Because most corporations know how to measure their effectiveness. At least they think they do. And they do it, more importantly, they do it in some way. And so what we, have a, what we typically do is we use the existing measures of an organization and try and, and relate them back. What we have found in a nutshell is that if you say that you do something in the building here, and it affects a behavior that affects organizational effectiveness, that concept people can affect, that sort of linked mechanism. <coughs> if you make the leap and say what you did in the building is having a direct effect on the, uh, the organization, organizational performance, there isn't much, um, the organizations don't buy it. Be, but what they do buy is that you've done something in this space that is affecting the ability of people to communicate or to collaborate, and then that, in turn, will affect the overall uh, effectiveness of the teams. And so that's the kind of linked mechanisms that we're, we're trying to show in, in our research. And we find some uh, pretty, uh, I would say, indicative, if not completely persuasive, uh, linkages between that. And again, a lot people are willing to accept tenant satisfaction as a placeholder for a lot of these things. And we're finding, and we do measure that tenant satisfaction in our buildings systematically across the inventory. And that's why we can make those statements made earlier. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Uh, please remember next March, uh, next month, March 13th. We'll see you then, and please remember to fill out the yellow sheets at your tables. Thanks.